titled the message today, Desperate Prayer. Desperate Prayer. We have five points, and we have one point, uh, one slide for each point, so that should help um, you, possibly, maybe me. I don't know. We'll see if I take a glance over my shoulder. But today we're talking about prayer because that's what this psalm is about. Our first point considers verses one through three. Verses one through three, a certain cry. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. I have a couple subpoints here under this certain cry. There's no slide for that. You can just listen. It says, number one, it's uniqueness. This is a certain type of prayer that is unique from other prayers. This prayer has an elevated desperation. There's an increased desperation in this prayer. It has a longing to it, an urgency. And that urgency we can see because it's repeated three times. Look at it. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry. This appeal is repeated three times in three different ways, yet he's saying the same exact, thi- the same exact thing. Hear me, O God. Give ear to my words. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry. David is repeating his cry three times in three ways that really all mean the same thing, and that shows his urgency to see God answer. I don't know if you were like this, but when I was a kid and I was trying to get my mom's attention, I might say, Mommy! But when that is, there's no avail, there's no answer, no response, you change it to, Mother! (laughs) Still no answer. Now, of course, you're repeating, Mommy, Mommy, Mommy! Mother! And she's still ignoring you. And then you pull out the big guns. And then I would say, Rachel Woodard, (laughs) that got her attention. She finally turns her head in surprise to hear her five-year-old child calling her by her first name. By the way, it's quite a bold sign of brazen disrespect for a child to call his or her parent by their first name, the way I was raised. I don't know about y'all, but kids don't do that. That's disrespectful. So what happens? Well, she hears you, and her ears perk up. Your mom will turn her head when she hears that increased desperation. That's something like what's happening here, where David is crying out, Hear me, O God. Give, consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry. In Hebrew poetry, things are repeated for emphasis. To repeat something three times put the, puts a maximum emphasis on that point. You don't really see things repeated four times. The most you'll see is three times, and that means that we've hit the top. We've hit the limit of the most fervent, serious, important, and desperate uh, tone that this could have. It means this is of greatest urgency, and so this is why I've titled this the uniqueness of this prayer. It is unique in its urgency. There's a way to cry for help that is different than ordinary requests. It is urgent, When you say, I need your help, and you're really urgently asking, I need you. That's what's going on here. 
But further, it is importunate. For those who were in prayer meeting a few weeks ago, that was our word of the day. Importunate prayer is this relentless prayer. I will not give up until you answer me. This is a relentless cry saying, God, please hear me. I'm not going away until you answer. This is the guy from Luke 11 who's knocking and knocking and knocking until he gets an answer. That's the type of urgency that is described in this psalm. Beyond that, it's not only urgent and importunate, it is also real. There's a way of asking for help that kind of has a facade to it where it's like kind of fake. Uh, Basically, it's like, oh, I could do this for myself, but I don't want to, so I'm asking you to do it. You know, like you're sitting on the couch and you ask your spouse to hand you the remote. The remote is approximately one foot beyond your reach. You could get up and get it, but instead you're asking for them. This is not like that. This is real. This is desperation. This is, this is saying, I have no other help. I have no other option but you. I need you desperately. It is utterly genuine. I watched a movie a few weeks ago about a soldier who was walking with his buddy in the sands of the Middle East. And his buddy was about 10 feet in front of him, and he stepped on a mine and blew up. Immediately, the main character steps on a mine as well. He sees his buddy blow up. He feels the click under his foot, and he stops in his tracks. Or as I put in my notes, he stops alive in his tracks. Um, He stops there, doesn't lift his foot, because if he lifts his foot, he gets blown up. So the whole premise of this two-hour-long movie is him standing there. I'll move over here so you can see. He's, he's standing there with this one foot not moving because if he lifts it, he's going to get blown up. So for days and days, he's standing there not moving his right foot. It's very intense. Like You feel the tension of like if he moves, you know, there's a sandstorm. It's blowing him. Uh, it, it gets daytime and then night and day and night and repeated over and over. And it's like he's standing there in the dark. Wolves are coming up at him. They're trying to attack him. He's running low on bullets from shooting at the animals that are trying to eat him after they're eating his friend. I can't lift his foot for days. This entire movie features his absolute desperation to stay alive and not suffer the same fate as his buddy who was blown to pieces only a few yards in front of him. The movie shows him calling headquarters and pleading for rescue. And then they say, well, we'll be there in five days. And so he's standing there getting sunburnt, runs out of water, has no food. He's facing scorching heat for days on end with no food, very little water. It shows him fighting off wolves in the desert night. It shows him pleading with a local villager to please help him. They're making fun of him because look at him. He's in a bad situation. Glad it's not us. There is this utter desperation to his cry. Something like that is what's going on here in Psalm 5. David's cry for help is utterly desperate. He has no other source of help. It's like the guy, the soldier, who's calling on the radio, pleading with his superiors to come now and help him now because he has no other hope. Now, if you're going to be wondering for the rest of this, what ends up happening? Well, he survives. He makes it. Turns out, the thing he was stepping on was a dud. It didn't blow up when he lifted his foot. Oh. 
Moving on. Number one is its uniqueness. Uh, our second sub point is its confidence. This is a certain prayer, a certain prayer that is unique in the way that it is. It's a certain type of prayer. It's a desperate prayer. It's urgent. It's importunate. But it, it's also a certain prayer that is confident. It has certainty. A certain prayer that is certain. It has confidence baked into its very essence. By the way, for those of you who are like smarter than the average person or better than English grammar than the average person, you will notice I'm using the word certain in two different ways within this point. In its uniqueness and then in its uh, confidence. The confidence of this prayer, it has confidence baked into its very essence. It is not a self-righteous confidence, but a confidence in God. There's a level of certainty with which David cries out to God morning and evening. We see that in Psalm 3, Psalm 4, Psalm 5, where one of them is the morning prayer. One of them is the evening prayer. And then we're back to the morning again. There's this pattern. He has a rich devotional life seeking the Lord morning and evening, day and night. David's hope in God is a settled confidence, like a child who is confident that his mother or father can hear him, so he cries out for his next meal, and he doesn't let up until he knows his voice is heard and until he gets what he needs. Look in verse 3. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. You shall hear my voice. You will hear from me again. Rest assured, I will be back. I will ask you for help again. He's not wavering in this. You shall hear in the morning. You will hear my voice tomorrow morning. In the morning, I will direct it to you. There's this this unwavering certainty. And then he says, and I will look up. I'm going to cry out to you. You will hear my voice because I'm going to be crying out to you. And then I'm going to be looking up for your answer. Beyond this, it's also personal. This one should have been sub point B, but it's not. It's sub point C. It's personal. Look at the end of, or the middle of verse two. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my king and my God. This prayer is personal. My king and my God. It's not just, O oh, king, O oh, God. O oh, king, O oh, God speaks of desperation. It's a cry. It's, O oh, king, hear me. But this is more than that. It's also personal, calling God my God. Can you see that difference? Can you see the difference between simply saying, oh, king, and saying, my king? Between saying, oh, God, and saying, my God? I think of the difference between going to the playground and seeing somebody else's son running around and seeing my son running around. Hearing somebody else's son cry out, daddy, daddy, and hearing my son cry out, daddy, daddy. There's a difference there, and it's a radical difference. If you've never had kids, just think of it with your your friend versus someone else's friend. Someone else's friend needs help, and you're just like, well, this thinks to be you. But when it's your friend, it makes all the difference. 
There is tremendous power in personal communication. This is the reason why in um, some communication or, or leadership literature, they emphasize the importance of names and knowing people's names, getting their name, remembering their name, using their name, greeting them by name. It shows that you actually care about them at least more than nothing. And you have the energy to remember their name. You might say, oh, I'm terrible at names. Well, you're terrible at putting effort into remembering names. Very few people are naturally good at remembering names. It takes everybody some level of effort to remember those names. By the way, here's my little uh, track off into a rabbit trail. Um, I, I never learned anything in Greek without a memory aid. In Greek class, I had a memory aid for absolutely everything. And so I do that with names as well. If someone has the same name as my brother, then I remember, oh, that's, you know, there's a guy that I know who has both of my brother's names. So that's Stephen Peter. That's where I remember it. So for you to show care for other people by remembering them, their names, you might need to write it down. And that's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of diligence. It's a, shi- a sign of care. Write their name down. Make a list of names. I was at a pastor's prayer meeting this week, and there were 15 or 20 pastors there. And as each one would come in, I'd just write their name down. So I have them in order, like from this side of the room all the way around, and then I'd write the name of the church that they're from. Why? Because I'm not going to remember it unless I try to remember it. If I do try to remember it, chances are better that I will. Now back to our text. This is speaking of the personal relationship with the Lord. There's power in personal communication. So I'll ask you, not only is he, is God king, is he a God and a king, but is he your God and your king? There's a lot of people in this room, probably 75 people. It would be foolish to assume that every person in this room is a Christian. In fact, I can be quite confident that not every person in this room is a Christian because I see children in this room who are not yet Christian. So I would ask you, Have you considered the possibility that maybe when your prayers are not answered, maybe it's because he's not answering because he doesn't know you? Maybe you're spiritual, but not religious. You pray, but there's nothing distinctly Christian about your prayers. So you're throwing words up into the space. You're talking to God in some generic sense but you're not getting answers. It might be that you're not even praying to the same God as the one that we're told to pray to in the Bible. It may perhaps be praying to a God of your own imagination or a God that is an angel of darkness parading as an angel of light. You know that it's not of God when the God you're praying to always agrees with you, always affirms you, and never tells you that you're wrong. The God you're praying to never tells you you're wrong, never tells you that you can't save yourself, or never tells you that you actually need an external rescue plan besides you getting it together. Don't get me wrong, you do need to get it together, but your getting it together will not save you. You cannot save yourself. If the God that you're praying to is a lot like the power of positive thinking, that's not the God of the Bible. You may have a God that you pray to, but it's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's, the not, it's not the triune God that has um, revealed himself to us in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I ask, is he your king, your God? Do you know him personally? 
Are your prayers marked by these characteristics, which we've overviewed here in point number one, these characteristics of desperation and urgency, relentlessness, genuineness, confidence, and personal relationship? This is a feature of desperate prayer, a certain kind of prayer. Moving on now to point number two. Point two, a sure holiness. A sure holiness. Verse four says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. What we see in this description is that God, uh, the character of God, God is utterly and absolutely holy. God takes no pleasure in wickedness. In fact, he hates wickedness and he hates the wicked. It is essential in our prayer and praying that we understand who God is that we're praying to. Have you ever had a question about a person in a specific situation? Well, that was vague enough. Certainly you have had a question at some point about some person. Maybe you weren't sure exactly what that person was doing in a specific situation, a friend, someone that's in your family or something. You're looking at them from a distance and you're just like, what is he doing? You're not sure. Perhaps something happened that raised some doubt in your mind, but then you thought, I'm not sure what's going on, but I know him. I know what he's like. I know the way he thinks about things. I know how his mind works. I know what his natural impulses are in a wide variety of situations. I know what he would want in this situation. The reason I know these things is because I know him. So I know how he would act in this situation. It's sort of like when someone sees a loved one on a blurry, distant video recording. They see that walk. You know, you know that person has a a certain style of walking to them, a certain cadence to their step, the way you can hear footsteps in the hallway of your home and you know who it is because they have a a certain weight to them or a certain speed to them or a certain pace to them. They walk with a gimp or they have a halt in their step. So the mother says when she sees the video, that's my son, I know the way he walks. Or to change the illustration yet further for you sports lovers, a number of years ago, there was a left fielder on the Boston Red Sox named Manny Ramirez. There was a popular expression about Manny whenever he would do something crazy. They would say, what would they say? Manny being Manny. Thank you. Manny being Manny. Some examples of this. He, He took a potty break in the middle of an inning one time. He took it in the left field fence. Like, he went, there's a door in the left field wall, and he just disappears through the wall, and then he comes back out again, and we all know he went there to use the bathroom. That's unusual. You don't see that every day. 
One time he made the most unnecessary dive of all time in order to cut off a throw from the center fielder, Johnny Damon. Manny's the left fielder. He has no business cutting off anybody's throws. He dives to catch a throw that the center fielder was throwing into the infield. He interrupts the throw to catch it, and then he throws it in, causing an extra relay, which results, I think, in an inside-the-park home run. It was, a, it was a terrible play. People watched it and laughed, and they just said, oh, that's Manny being Manny. Another time he made a leaping catch in Baltimore and continued after he catches the ball, jumps up on the fence, gives a fan a high five in the crowd, then throws the ball back into the infield and completes the double play. He gives the guy a high five in the middle of the play. That's Manny being Manny. There's a whole bunch of these videos on YouTube if you type in Manny being Manny. What is that referring to? Well, that's, that's about the character of Manny Ramirez. There's something about him that is distinct. Well, so my point here is the character of God is utterly and absolutely holy. holy. He takes no pleasure in wickedness. You must recognize this if your prayers have any chance of being rightly framed. You have to understand that the God of the Bible, the Christian God, is absolutely and utterly holy. And knowing that will change everything about your religion. In particular, for today's message, your prayers. The character of God is absolutely unwavering in its holiness and moral uprightness. If you don't have this firmly fixed in your mind, your prayers and even your faith itself, which is inseparably tied to your prayer, your faith and your prayer are like linked. They're conjoined twins. If you don't have these, this clarity, your faith itself will be as unstable as tourists riding the train without holding on, falling all over the place with every stop and go. You've got to understand the holiness of God. The character of God is an anchor that you can hook your ropes of prayer onto. And then having those anchor points that your, your ropes of prayer are hooked onto, the character of God, then you can swing out off the cliff in faith, resting confidently on who God is. The attribute described in this point is his absolute holiness and moral purity, which means that he hates evil because he is holy. He also hates those who are evil, the boastful, the proud, those who lie, those who are bloodthirsty. I was just at uh, the Anchorage camp in North Carolina about two weeks ago, um, speaking at a, a small conference on Ephesians 4. And um, that camp, I grew up attending there as a kid, and then I worked there in college for two summers. And one of those summers, I was a camp counselor, and I had this, um, this kid who came, and he spent half the summer at camp, at that camp. I think his mom realized that it was cheap daycare. It was like 180 bucks a week, and um, she could get rid of her kid for like four weeks, maybe five weeks, for less than $1,000. And this is, you know, all food is provided. All, like, she has a break. So she was, uh, she was quite happy to get rid of him. And... Um, he was in my cabin for three of those four weeks. And um, this young man had issues. Um, now, my, looking back on it, I'm, I'm even more astounded. But like 
on a very long list of um, mind-altering medications and was telling me how his mother worshipped the lightning god. And he was adopted from Russia. This, all this stuff is true. Like, he's not lying. Like, he genuinely was adopted. His parents were rich and old, and they were pagans. And, um, I mean, the kid was rough. Like, he was probably nine, but he was like nine going on 19, uh, cursed like a sailor, and was just, like, so aggressive. Like, he would jump on you and pinch you. Like, he's a little guy, but just, like, mean. And... Uh, <laughs> So halfway through week two, the kid gets saved. Two of his four weeks at the camp, three of which were in my cabin. And my pattern for doing cabin devotions was I had this certain pattern that I did every, like a certain thing on Monday night, a certain thing on Tuesday night, a certain thing on Wednesday night, and so on. And I'm talking about the character of God, the reality of judgment, and so on, because I know I've got a... um, fixed audience here. Like, they're going to be here tomorrow night, so I can kind of space this out. And um, halfway through, yeah, we went through the Ten Commandments one of the nights, and um, so halfway through week two, uh, the kid gets saved, and he starts, like, his his mind, his way of thinking, his life, his behavior, all these things start to change, because, you know, I'm seeing over a period of a month. And um, one day, we were out in the lake a week or two later, because we go to the lake like twice a day, every day at this camp, and he um, he takes the Lord's name in vain. Now, in our cabin devotions, we're talking through the Ten Commandments, and he's heard this speech now three times about, like, you shall know the gods before me, you shall not make any graven images, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord your God is... Uh, um, I can't think right now. Anyway, um, he will not hold him blameless who takes his name in vain. So he, he understands what that means. And then he is just blurts out, oh, my God, which is taking his name in vain. And I said, Nick. That's all. I just said, Nick. And he, he freezes and then suddenly like hangs his head in shame. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. And I said, no, no, no. Why is it a problem to say that? And his response was, because God is holy. See, it is essential that we understand the character of God. And what is pointed out in this text is that God is holy. And when we start to understand that, it changes everything about us. Let's move on. Point three, a compelling mercy, a compelling mercy. Verses seven and eight, it says, but as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. The mercy of God draws David in. It is the mercy of God that draws David in. He sees this merciful God and he says, all right, I'm going to come. I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. We've spoken just previously about the the holiness of God and that um, certainty of that and how stark that is and how uh, aggressive that is, that God's holiness is not to be messed with. But that's not all. 
He is also a God of mercy. And that mercy actually compels people to come to him. You come, you draw near to him knowing that he will receive you if you will come. It's this mercy of God that draws David in. Think with me, David is not actually that great of a guy. He had a lot of issues. He killed innocent people. Took their wives before he killed them. Killed them to cover it up. Had a lot of blood on his hands. But he cries out to this God of mercy. But it's not just the God of mercy. It is also this same mercy and grace which instills fear in David. As for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. He doesn't say, in fear of you, I will avoid your holy temple. But it's this fear of the holiness of God, the mercy of God, and the grace of God, which then um, affects his worship. The mercy of God has this irresistible nature to it that sinners across all ages in every continent, every country, and every class of people have found alluring. They have found the mercy of God compelling. And so they're drawn in. They are wooed to Christ. They are compelled to come in. Sinners of all all shapes and sizes have found their salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you're hooked and you can't forever stray. Even if you do stray, you're going to come back because you start to remember. You start to think, oh man, I'm in the far country and this is not good. And if I return to my father, he will receive me. He will feed me. He will cl- to, be, to be his slave is better to be here on my own eating from the pig trough. Once you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you're hooked and you can't stray forever. But beyond all this, there's also this reverential fear of God component to this mercy that when we see, when we truly see, this provokes a profound respect and fear in us. Once we have actually seen who God is, it it causes respect within us for the Lord. I have here under this, my next subpoint says illustration, but it's blank. So I didn't put an illustration in my notes. And I can't think of one right now. So we're going to keep moving. <laughs> Verse 8. Lead me in your righteousness. The idea here is that that David is asking God to direct his steps according to God's character, according to God's righteousness. Lead me according to your righteousness. The word righteousness is used in a number of different ways. There's there's, uh, the, the moral rightness of God. There's also the imputed righteousness of God where he saves us by crediting to us the sinless perfection of his son, Jesus. There's a couple different ways that this word righteousness is used. But what I I believe and what scholars believe is is described here is that this is God's character, God's righteousness, and that that is what should be directing our decisions. Have you ever stopped to think about any given situation? You're like, wait a second, I have three, four options. Which option is one which would honor my God, not just a God, but my God, who is also my king, which decision would be 
the one that, that aligns with his character, the righteous character of God. If I do this decision, is it going to actually lie about my God? Is it going to say, well, my God is actually an unrighteous God, or my righteous God is not actually my God, so he won't really mind it if I do this corrupt business deal, if I you know, steal a ton of money from some people. David is asking the Lord to lead him in the Lord's righteousness. These things are foundational and essential to desperate prayer. An absolute reliance on the mercy of God so that you come to him. And then a clear vision of the fear of God so that you come to him appropriately. And then recognizing the righteousness of God so that you're not lying about him, betraying his very essence and character. This is a compelling mercy. The next point, point four, a perverse company, a perverse company. Verse nine, there is no faithfulness in their mouth. This is the the wicked that are described in the previous verses that are these enemies of God. There's no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out of the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. This perverse company, this is the cause of David's desperate prayer. It's because of these people, because of these evil people that the Lord hates that David is crying out to God in desperation. If these people were very nice people, he would not be praying like this. He would probably not be praying at all about them. If he did, he would just be saying, thank you, God, for these very nice people that are not bothering me. But instead, these people are harassing him. They're trying to kill him. They're trying to overthrow his kingdom. They're hunting him down in the wilderness. There are people who who, uh, construct deceitful tactics in order to overthrow his kingdom. There's no faithfulness in their mouth. You can't trust a word that they say. They say one thing to get a group of people to believe them. Then they say the opposite to get another group of people to believe them in order to collude against King David. There's no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Out of their heart is this destructive heart. And that's why they're saying what they're saying. Their throat is an open tomb. People die because of their words. They flatter with their tongue. They're lying and flattering people in order to get their army built up. Hey, if you come fight with me against David, I'll give you a lot of money. I'll give you a big position. I'll be much better to you than King David was. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. It's rightly been said that if you tell the truth, you don't have to have a good memory. You tell the truth, you don't have to have a good memory. I try to tell the truth all the time. Because my dad, I don't say beat it into me, but he repeated it into me. He said it over and over and over again. He said, Andy, I don't care how much trouble you get into. You can always come to me. Just don't ever lie to me. So on your worst day, you can come to me. But don't lie. The result is there have been many, many times where people ask, Andy, did you do this or say this? And I'm like, um, 
I don't remember what I said at that time, but whatever I told, whatever I told you at that time was true. Like, I don't remember the situation. But if I told you a certain thing happened at that time, it happened. You can be confident of that. And when I say it happened, I mean it objectively happened. I'm not an idealist. I'm an objectivist in terms of philosophy, okay? Like, we're not speaking in terms of, like, wishful thinking or, or I felt like it or your truth or my truth. We're talking about security camera on the wall, watching the events that take place. If you say that it happened, it better have happened. If you think that it might have happened, you better clarify to say, I think that it might have happened. But what's happening, what's describing here in verse 10 is these people fall by their own counsels because their lies get tangled up and those lies come back to bite them because they're lying to person after person after person and then eventually the truth is revealed and the plot collapses upon them. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. Their sins are multiplied because that's what happens. Sin gives birth to sin. You have to, if you're lying, you have to lie to cover up for your lie, and then you have to make more lies to cover up for those lies, and this whole thing just gets compounded, and it gets worse and worse and worse until you repent and come clean and just be honest. And once you have come clean, once you have repented, once you have been honest, the weight is off. The pressure's off. You can just say, look, I was wrong. Yeah, I, I did that. Yeah, I said that. It was wrong. You're no longer trying to spin this whole situation to keep all your, your plates spinning. There was a, a, a festival circus type thing down in Florida where they would have these Chinese acrobats. I think they were actually Chinese. They were definitely acrobats. And um, down at the Florida Strawberry Festival, every year we would go and we would see this. And they had all of these plates on sticks and they would spin them. They would hold like five or six of them in their hands and be spinning these glass plates. And they, could, they kept adding more and more and more. And you're just really impressed that they're able to keep all this going. That's what that illustration is a reference to if you ever hear someone refer to keeping their plates spinning. When they stop spinning them, they collapse and they start breaking. I don't know if those people find stress in that, but I would find stress in that. So, so it is living a life of sin and trying to keep all of these lies going and trying to keep a, a <clears throat> destructive, evil, wicked life going. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. So it is this perverse company, it is this perverse group of people that have provoked David's desperate prayer. Let's move on to our last point, point five, a secure future, a secure future. Verse 11 says, let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor you will surround him as with a shield. One uh, commentary, Dale Roth Davis, who I've mentioned before, he says that this praise given to God hinges upon God answering the, cre- the request given. That's my paraphrase of what he said. But this praise that's given in verses 11 and 12 hinges upon God answering the request given in verse 10. 
But what is verse 10? Verse 10 says, pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. David's not going to give this praise that he gives in verses 11 and 12 unless verse 10 happens. He's not going to be saying, we rejoice for we trust in you. We're going to shout for joy because you defend. If God hasn't defended them, he's not going to be saying, we're we're joyful that you've defended us. Verse 12 straight up says, with favor you will surround him with a shield. If God hasn't surrounded them with a shield, he's not going to be saying, thank you for surrounding me with a shield. So this praise given to God in verses 11 and 12 hinges upon God answering the request given in verse 10. In other words, the wicked must be dealt with for the godly to rejoice in this way. That might be uncomfortable for you to think about. That might be uncomfortable for you to receive, especially if you are against the idea of justice being dealt to the wicked or to take it a step further, let's just say abusive people being stood up to. If you're only comfortable with saying, turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek, and you're, you're kind of allergic to the idea of drawing a boundary or setting a line and saying, you're actually not going to step further than this. I would like you to just be aware that there are other verses besides the Sermon on the Mount in the Bible. <laughs> including, don't cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample you underfoot. So verse 11 and 12 hinges upon God actually dealing with the wicked. The wicked must be dealt with for the godly to rejoice in this way. It is God's dealing justly with the wicked that is the defense of the righteous. Now this creates some tension in our minds because the Bible, the same Bible which says love your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you also says you hate all workers of iniquity. So how do you pray for the wicked while also recognizing God hates the wicked? What's the solution? Well, Since we're just in the land of happy thoughts with no difficulties, we'll answer that by saying, pray for their conversion or condemnation. God, save them. Or send them to hell. Now, that's a hard thing to say, but if you have any theological training at all, you know that's the only two options. Those are the only two options. Every single human being who has ever lived is either saved or goes to hell. So you praying that is actually not anything new or novel, but it's just lining your prayers and lining your heart up with who God is, what he has said, how he's established the world to to operate. And until you get your heart to align with the will and word of God, you're going to have a lot of tension in your soul. Some call that stress. So you're going to have this stress inside of you that gnaws away about like, the situation is not good. Yeah, it's not good. But as long as you're like longing for the, the wicked, like, like pining for the other team, that stress within you is going to be exponentially increased. So our prayers for the wicked is convert them. Convert them. 
Pray for their conversion or condemnation. God, save them or send them to hell. We will not dwell securely unless you do this. There is no safety unless you turn them from their sin or deal with their sin. There's an old expression that has fallen out of use, and it goes like this. You might see it from a sign from a street preacher in in, uh, Times Square. It says, turn or burn. Maybe a less rhymy kind of one says, repent or perish. These are the only two options. And it's important for you as a Christian to recognize that and allow that to change your heart so that you have this sobriety to your own worldview. Not saying that you become a hater. No, you you love these people and so you'll pray for them, but you recognize that if they don't, well, Jesus said something like this, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he said it again Two verses later, Luke 13, 3 and 13, 5. You can say to the wicked, I don't want you to perish any more than I want you to keep abusing me. But unless you repent, you're going to hell. Now, my next subpoint for this final point is that the um, perverse company described in verse 9 and 10 are very, very different from the righteous. They're set in contrast to each other in these verses. The righteous are not like the wicked. The wicked are these people who are, um, there's no faithfulness in their mouth, and the inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. But the righteous are described as those who trust in the Lord. That is the essential first step. There is no second step if there's not that first step of trusting in the Lord. Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. That is the very essence of salvation is trust in the Lord. What comes next after trusting in the Lord is shouting for joy. The righteous trust in the Lord. They shout for joy. They're also defended by their God. And they love the name of of the Lord. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. You are not saved by loving God, but if you are saved, you love God. You're saved by trusting. You're not saved by your affections. But if you are trusting, your affections will in some way start to get it worked out. There's a number of Songs and hymns like this uh, speak of this, the relationship between the Christian and loving the name of the Lord. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrow, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. It, the name of Jesus, it makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. It is manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. Dear name, the rock on which I build my shield and hiding place, my never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. 
Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, except the praise I bring. Weak is the effort of my heart and cold my warmest thought. But when I praise thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. When I praise you as you are. Till then I would thy love proclaim with every fleeting breath. And may the music of thy name refresh my soul in death. The Christian's relationship to the name of the Lord is a relationship of love. Christians love the name of the Lord. Christians also receive blessings from the Lord. And the last sub point is that these Christians are surrounded by the Lord's shield. Apparently, there's different types of shields in ancient Roman shield, shieldry. I don't know. Shield making, shield production. So heraldry, is that the term? Okay. Um, so they have like those small round ones with the pokey thing in the middle. These ones are long and kind of rounded. And so the soldiers who are holding them, it's kind of covering you from the top, from like up here, all the way down to your feet. They're sort of rounded, which means you could get two or three of them and create sort of a cocoon type situation where like two people are, are holding them and they're surrounded. They're protected by this shield. That's the image that is being described here. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. It is the favor of God that surrounds us like that. If you are a depressed Christian, I would encourage you to read verse 12, and 11 and 12, and read them again and again, perhaps memorize them, to recognize that you in Christ have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in, in heavenly places, Verse 12 says, you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. The goodness and mercy of the Lord will follow you all the days of your life. And maybe right now you're not feeling that, but you shouldn't believe everything you feel. You should allow the truth of the word of God to shape your thoughts. And then your thoughts will shape the way you feel. This idea that, these, that, that the righteous are surrounded by the Lord's shield reminds me of Paul's resolve in his message to Timothy before he was beheaded in Rome in AD 65. And it is instructive for us to give us the right perspective in our prayers in desperate times. So I'm going to read from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4 in conclusion. Please note... This idea that the Lord protects his people, that he is a shield around them, is true, even for someone like Paul who writes this and then gets beheaded immediately after. So just put all this in context. Verse 6 of 2 Timothy 4 says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's available for you. Verse 9, be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas, who has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, 
Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first defense, no one stood with me, for all forsake me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. And before I say the word amen, I want to comment on what that last verse said. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. Once you realize what's going on here, you recognize that Paul is saying that actually on the other side of that sword beheading him is his deliverance. That's his rescue. That's God's grace to preserve him for God's heavenly kingdom. You might be like, oh, that sounds awful. Well, it is awful. But you got to recognize everybody's going to die. Every single person. Does Paul want to die abandoning his Savior, rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, turning away from his allegiance to Jesus in order to save his life for a couple more years till he dies of old age? No. Eternity is long. Rather, he, his desire is that the Lord would preserve him for his heavenly kingdom. He's living for eternity. He's looking to the future. And so he prays in this way, confident that the Lord will deliver him from every evil work and preserve him for his heavenly kingdom. All of this is to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for <clears throat> this text. We thank you for Psalm 5 and this, this roadmap that it gives to us about um, prayer. In, in desperation, in difficult times, we can cry out to you in, in a, a certain way, in a unique way, with this extended urgency, with great confidence as well. We thank you for your character, which has been revealed to us, your holiness and your mercy. We thank you for your um, established character that hates the wicked. And that you have established and secured our future, that we are not um, cast away from you. We are not left to fall forever and ever and ever like those horrible nightmares that so many people throughout history have had, these, these dreams of falling and falling and never landing at the bottom. But we have a secure future, and our secure future is the favor of the Lord surrounding us. You will bless us. You will defend us. Lord, I pray that this message today would help to strengthen and shape our prayers, that we would pray in desperation in light of the things that we've seen here in Psalm 5. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.